Well, the time has come once again. It's the second Sunday night of the month, and that's our night for questions and answers. Of course, I make you submit the questions ahead of time. If you're visiting with us tonight, we do this once a month. But the questions are submitted in writing beforehand so that I can have time to actually look up the Bible answers instead of just throwing off the top of my head whatever I think at the moment. And so, if you would like to have any questions answered, any Bible questions you've been dealing with you'd like us to discuss, please feel free to submit those. You can go right at the phone stand beside my office out here in the foyer. There's some little sheets of paper. You can fill it out, drop it in the box outside my office that says Second Sunday Night Questions and Answers. And as we have time, I will certainly get to those if I can. Please make sure that you can put your name on there. Now, if you want it to be anonymous, that's fine. But certainly there are some questions I may not answer. And if I can't get to them during the service sometime, I'd like to write an answer to you. Or maybe sometimes I even need some clarification and I can't answer a question if I'm not really sure what it means. So that's why I have your name on there. And so unless you just have some major reason for anonymity, please put your name on there so that I can get with you if I need to on that. That's what we're doing every second Sunday night of the month. Tonight, we're basically going to be covering one topic. It's going to take up the entirety of our time this evening. The questions coming from one person dealing with church discipline. When is church discipline necessary, and why do churches not practice it more? In order to answer these two questions, we've got to start off by answering a couple other questions. First of all, what's church discipline for? And what are the processes of church discipline? What are the mechanics? What do we have to do in order to discipline somebody? And once we get those two things out of the way, then we'll be able to actually deal with these questions. So we're going to begin by asking the question, what's the purpose of church discipline? I think as we look at the Bible, the Bible demonstrates to us that there are basically five things that are accomplished in discipline, five purposes that we find behind church discipline. Allow me to tell you just right up front, though, a mistake that I think a lot of folks make regarding this. A lot of folks, and we'll talk more about it at the end of the lesson, but a lot of folks make the mistake of believing that the purpose of church discipline is to withdraw fellowship from somebody. That is not the purpose of discipline. That is the process, or part of the process. That's part of the mechanics of church discipline, but that's not the purpose of discipline. As we look at the Scripture, we find five things. The very first thing is that church discipline is used to mark the sinner. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Paul said, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. The King James says, Mark those. The New King James, Note those who cause these problems. That is the purpose of church discipline. We are marking those who are causing problems. And what it points out is to the congregation, this person's a sinner. They're rebelling against the Word of God, and they're continuing in that sin, and everybody needs to know that. And so we're marking them. We're taking note of them. I believe in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We also find that very same thing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Take note or mark them. One of the purposes for church discipline is to mark someone as a rebellious sinner. The second purpose that we find is that it's given to punish the sinner. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, 
You'll remember in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talked to the Corinthians about a man who was committing immorality with his stepmother. And Paul told them what they were supposed to do then in the second letter to the Corinthians as he writes back to them about this very situation. We find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Another translation of that would be rebuke. And so Paul, as he's writing back, about, writing about what happened before, he said this was punishment. This was a rebuke that needed to be felt, that needed to be heard, that needed to be voiced so that the sinner would know of their sin. They needed to be rebuked and they needed to be punished for their sin. So we're marking the sinner, we're punishing or rebuking the sinner. The third thing is we're trying to shame the sinner. We read that just moments ago in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. We don't like shame in our culture today. We don't like to feel ashamed. And yet, that is exactly one of the purposes behind congregational discipline is to make people feel ashamed for their sins. That's also one of the reasons somebody argue against it. Oh, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want them to feel bad. They might feel ashamed. Well, good. Because that's what we want them to feel. We want them to be ashamed of themselves and their sin and to understand exactly what they have been involved in and help them feel the shame for their actions. Because, of course, it's the shame that will hopefully prompt repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, as Paul, as Paul was encouraging the Corinthian brethren to exercise discipline regarding this immoral man, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Was Paul here saying that, look, if you take a sinner and if you withdraw from him and exercise discipline, he gets to be saved anyway? No, that's not his point. How is this man going to be saved? This man is going to be saved if because of this action... He is shamed and therefore repents and comes back into the fold of Christ. And so the purpose of this discipline was to shame him, to mark him, to rebuke him and punish him, to shame him in hope of prompting him to repent and turning back to God. We find the purpose. But as we consider the purpose for discipline, we also find in the Bible that the purpose for discipline is not all just about the man who is sinning. We find from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 that the purpose, another purpose behind discipline is to cause us, the rest of us, to fear sinning. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20, as he's talked about, in fact, here, dealing with elders that might need to be rebuked, he points out in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Of course, Paul's point to Timothy is that if we're going to rebuke an elder, punishing him in front of the entire congregation, how much more should we do that for others? So that they'll fear sinning. After all, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. 
And so we want folks to recognize that when you send there are consequences of that, not only for yourself, but also for our relationship with one another and for Christ's body. And you need to fear sinning because when you sin, these are the kind of things that will take place and we'll have to cut you off from our fellowship and have to mark you and withdraw from you. And hopefully that will cause others to back up and think a little bit more seriously about the action that they're taking and the way that they're living and the things that they're doing. So we find these purposes in the Scripture for congregational discipline. Mark the sinner, punish the sinner, shame the sinner, prop repentance, cause others to fear sinning. One of the things that we need to keep in mind, in the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. I just want to throw this out to you. I want you to understand something. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. The Hebrew writer here points out that when somebody has rebelled against God, they've been a part of God's family, they've known what it means to be a part of God's family and to have the forgiveness that comes from God, but they turn their back on that rebelling in sin, rebelling against God, it is impossible for us to renew them to repentance. It does not say that it's impossible for them to repent. But what it does point out is that there is really not much we can do to force them to repent. The reason why I bring this up is because whenever we start talking about congregational discipline, one of the things that almost always happens is folks go to this point right here and they say, now wait a minute, remember, we're trying to prompt repentance. Now what's the best way to get them to repent? And then start making up things about discipline because they're honing in on this. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 points out to us that there is no best way to make anybody else repent. We cannot make them repent. We can simply obey God and do what He says we're supposed to do and hope and pray that the sinner will come to repentance. They'll realize, as that prodigal son did, that they'll come to their senses and they'll return to the fold to serve the Father. But our job is not to try to figure out what's the best way to accomplish these goals. Our job is simply to do what God has told us to do in practicing congregational discipline. Well, what exactly has He told us to do? Here's the purpose of discipline. What's the process of discipline? What are the mechanics? What things are we going to do in order to discipline somebody? Look in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 15. We have here pretty much the summation of what it is that we're supposed to do with someone who is sinning and how we're supposed to deal with them. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, the Bible says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Here we find the process by which we would congregationally discipline the rebellious sinner. 
We begin by recognizing in verse 15 that there's an individual admonition. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. How? In private. If you know that somebody has sinned, you don't go talk to the preacher about it. You don't go talk to their parents about it or their siblings about it or the elders about it. Where do you go? You go talk to them. Every single one of us have this responsibility. This is our job. When we see a brother or sister in Christ sin, it is our job to go talk to them in private. To point out their error. If they repent, if they admit, yes, I know it was a sin, and they they repent and they turn from it, and they express their sorrow for their sin, you won your brother. You brought them back. That doesn't say that they're not ever going to do it again. But they understand. We're dealing with somebody who is a struggling sinner who is working and growing. We're not dealing with somebody who is rebelling against the Word of God. But for some folks, they won't listen. They might get mad. For all we know, they might even try to use Scripture to justify the way they're behaving. But if they're sinning and they won't listen to the individual admonition, then the next thing we do is we take one or two witnesses with us. According to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This accomplishes two things. First of all, it establishes witnesses. We now have two or three witnesses that can confirm that the brother or sister is in sin, rebelling against the will of God. Secondly, it provides a second admonition, another warning, another rebuke, another attempt to try to bring this brother or sister back into the fold of God as they'll turn away from their sins and come back to God's will. But some will not listen. If they do listen, you warn your brother. It doesn't have to go any further than that. Nobody else needs to know. But if it doesn't win the brother, then we find in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now we report the sin to the congregation. Before that, we've been trying to take care of this privately so that there wouldn't be shame. But now we have to tell it to the church. I am certain that that involves going to the elders and pointing out to them if they haven't already been involved, if they weren't already one of the witnesses or one of the ones that noticed it, go taking it to the elders and letting them know about the sin. And I'm certain that it also involves having it presented to the congregation in general, that they will know that here's a brother that's living in rebellious sin. But this, this really, we're just marking right here. There's no withdrawal that's taking place yet. We're just pointing out to the congregation, here's a brother or sister that's sinning. They're refusing to submit to the admonition of one and of two or three. And so now it's being brought to the church, and now the church is supposed to do something. The church is supposed to go to them. In specific, certainly, the elders, the leaders of the congregation would go to them. But then members of the congregation would go as well. Those who hadn't been previously aware, now that they've seen the evidence, the two or three witnesses confirming the sin, they're going to go to the brother or sister and talk to them about the sin and try to bring them back. But if they don't listen, then we find step number four. Refuse association with the sinner. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to the two or three, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus was speaking here to Jews and to them, Gentiles and tax collectors. Those were folks you didn't associate with. And so the meaning to them was quite clear. But as we look at this end result of the process of discipline here, he hasn't listened to the one, hasn't listened to the two or three, hasn't listened to the church, and now the church has to treat him as a tax collector or a Gentile. We find this same sentiment repeated 
throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Looking at about verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. We find in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14 again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. What do we find repeatedly? Don't associate with, turn away from, reject. If they won't listen when the individual comes to them, if they still won't repent when the two and three witnesses come and talk to them, if they still won't repent when the church is warning them and admonishing them, then it's time to reject and turn away from and not associate with them, not even to eat with such a one. They don't get invited to the parties and the potlucks. They don't get invited to anything that we as Christians are doing which might signify that there is some type of relationship with them in Christ. We don't do that. However, there's one more step that's not included here in Matthew chapter 18. We find this in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Go back over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. After he points out to us that we should not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame, verse 15 in 2 Thessalonians 3 says, Yet, do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. Don't be hateful. Don't be mean. Don't be vigilant. We're not disciplining someone in order to put them in their place. We want them to be our brother. And we want them to turn again to God's will. And so we admonish them as a brother. They want to study the Word of God with us. We want to study it with them. We want to talk to them. And we want to do it lovingly and tenderly and gently. Because we want to turn them back to the will of God. And so we admonish them as a brother. We do not treat them as an enemy. And yet, we are not allowed to have just frivolous association with the brother who is living in rebellious sin. There has to be a severance. Under the old law, God repeatedly said, they're cut off from my people. And that's what's happening here. Being cut off from the people of God because of their sin. So now we ask the question, knowing the purpose and knowing the process, we now ask the question, well, when do we discipline? When should a congregation discipline? One of the temptations we have when trying to answer this question is coming up with a list. We want to go through what the Bible says and find the list of sins for which the congregation is supposed to discipline someone. I believe that's a mistake. But what we might do is we would go, of course, we can look in Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, once again, let's read it again. If I can never get there in my Bible here. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned. Obviously, we're allowed to discipline those who are causing division among the brethren. 
We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. Paul says there, he has a list here. And I think probably this verse is one of the reasons why people go to trying to make lists. Because here's a list. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, covetous, idolatrous, or reviler, or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. Obviously, we withdraw from folks for these sins. They're continuing in them. We can look in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this time, a little bit earlier in the chapter, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Notice what Paul says there. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And he goes on to talk about the tradition they received from Paul, how he lived. He worked. He took care of himself. He didn't live an unruly, undisciplined life as a busybody, but he worked. He says if folks will come in and they won't work, you don't let them eat. You discipline them. And we also find toward the end of the chapter, verse 14, he opens it up a little bit more. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and don't associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. If folks will not obey the instruction of Paul, which of course was not his own instruction but came from God, what was the church supposed to do? They were supposed to exercise discipline upon this brother or upon this sister. We can look in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 and verse 10. In Titus chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When we find that somebody wants to argue over meaningless matters and causing factions and divisions regarding those things, we exercise discipline. Some want to go through and make these lists. And certainly, we can look at any of these passages and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt we can withdraw from folks for these sins that we've just mentioned. However, I think that's probably a mistaken approach. First of all, we'll take a look at, for instance, Romans 16. We'll take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. We'll take a look at Titus chapter 3. All these passages dealing with division, leading an unruly life, and dissension over meaningless points. In those passages, Paul was not trying to provide for us the pattern for every single possible disciplinary action. He was dealing with specific situations that needed to end in discipline. He was not trying to set up some kind of list that we might follow. We go to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we recognize it mentions immorality and idolatry and covetousness and swindling, extortion, those kind of things. But that's not an exhaustive list. That's a representative list. I know that. Because it doesn't include leading an undisciplined life and causing division. And we've got other passages that says we're supposed to withdraw from folks for that. So he's not trying to provide an exhaustive list. Then we have the passage in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, which opens the door up to just disregarding the instruction. If we disregard the instruction of Scripture, that person is supposed to be withdrawn from discipline by the congregation, which goes along with what we read moments ago in Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, which sins did Jesus say we were supposed to go talk to our brother about? He didn't specify, did he? He just said, if you see your brother sin, what do you do? You go talk to him in private. If you see your brother sin. Now, I know some of your translations say if he sins against you. First of all, there are a few manuscripts. Most of the manuscripts don't have that against you in there. Second of all, one of the things we have to recognize is that in our relationship in this body of Christ, if one of our brethren within this church is sinning, they are sinning against us. 
Just as David, when he committed his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, was sinning against every Israelite in his nation. When our brethren sin, they sin against God, they sin against His church, they sin against us. When we see them sin, we need to go to them. And so we ask, well, well, when should we do this then? When should the congregation discipline, withdraw fellowship, mark and withdraw from somebody? I think we just go back to Matthew 18 and we learn the prerequisites. Number one, we discipline somebody when, they, when sin has occurred. But that's not the only thing. Because, of course, if we disciplined everybody who ever sinned, we'd all be disciplined, wouldn't we? The congregation would be splendid. We've all sinned. Well, what else have we got here? When the sin can be established by two or three witnesses, just because I know you've done something doesn't mean the congregation takes action. We've got to be able to establish this by two or three witnesses. Number three, when the sinner has been admonished and warned repeatedly, one has gone to him, two or three have gone to him, the church has gone to them, and they still are going to live in their sin, which of course gets us to the final step, when the sinner rebels, refusing to acknowledge his or her sin and repent. That's the key. When do we exercise congregational discipline? There's not some list of sins that we hold withdrawal for on those things. When somebody is a rebellious sinner, if it's because they want to cuss, because they want to drink, because they're committing adultery or idolatry, it doesn't matter. If a person is going to live rebelliously in sin, no matter how small or how great, when it's established by two or three witnesses and they've been repeatedly warned and admonished and talked to, and I understand that not every situation is the same. I understand that depending on the person, the situation, the background, we do different things at different times and go through different lengths of patience with folks. I understand that. There's no way that I could set up some list of exactly bang, 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 and here's how long it takes. You know, once the person sins, we've got four weeks to get all this done. I, there's none of that. But when you're dealing with a rebellious sinner who has been repeatedly admonished and warned and they will not repent, even when one person has gone to them, two or three have gone to them, and the congregation has gone to them, then the discipline is supposed to take place. Why? In order to mark them. In order to rebuke and punish them. In order to shame them. In order to prompt them to repentance. And in order to warn the rest of us cause us to fear sinning. And that's when we discipline. And that's when congregational discipline should take place. And that's the only answer I can give you. The final question. Why don't churches do it more? We know it's in the Bible, and yet, of course, it seems that it's been forgotten by most congregations. I think as we look across the brotherhood in general, very few congregations exercise discipline. Even those that do don't exercise it very consistently or properly. And so we ask the question, why? Obviously, I can't speak for every congregation out there. I can't tell you exactly why all the congregations are not disciplining exactly the way I should, but I can share with you some general trends. And the only reason, really, why I answer this question is simply because we've got to make sure that we are not making these same mistakes. Number one, well, some misunderstand the concept of fellowship and the, the, the fellowship within the congregation that we have. One of the things that you will often hear when we deal with the question of discipline and withdrawing fellowship is that you will often hear someone say, and I understand why, I understand why this is said, and I understand that at a certain level it does make some sense, but I don't think it fits with the Bible. 
you often hear someone say, well, we can't withdraw from those who have already withdrawn from us. Here's somebody that's dropped out. They're not coming to services. They won't return our calls. We can't withdraw fellowship from them. They've already broken fellowship with us. We can't withdraw fellowship from them. However, that misunderstands the concept of congregational fellowship and fellowship that we have with Christians. Look in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If you are living in rebellious sin, you are already not in fellowship with everyone else in the congregation. Whether you're still attending services or not. The fellowship is broken when somebody rebels in sin. And so for us to say, well, the fellowship's already broken by them, we can't withdraw fellowship, is to kind of reduce the teaching down to an absurdity because the fact is everybody who's rebelled in sin has broken fellowship with us already. The exercising of congregational discipline is to formalize and to produce in our action toward them what has already happened spiritually. But a lot of folks, I think, miss this concept of fellowship. And, of course, added to that, the second problem is that some misunderstand the purpose of discipline. Because there are a lot of folks that believe the purpose of discipline is in order to withdraw fellowship, they will add to that. Well, the person's not, they won't hang out with us anyway. And so how can we withdraw fellowship from them? But keep in mind, that's not the purpose. That's just the process. That's just one of the mechanical steps that we're going through as we're working through this process of congregational discipline. If that's all we think about, we're going to miss the fact that, wait, this person has to be marked so that the congregation can be warned of the danger of this sinner. Without the discipline, that never takes place. This person has to be rebuked and punished for their sin. That needs to be voiced. It needs to be heard, not just slipping off into oblivion somewhere. The brethren need to fear sinning. And if we allow folks to just kind of slip away, then the brethren won't fear sinning. You see, discipline is not just about withdrawing fellowship. It's about so many other things as well that need to take place so that the congregation can be strengthened and grow. It's not just about saying we're withdrawing fellowship. And when we understand the purpose of discipline, it helps us to accomplish the discipline properly. At times, we may say to ourselves, well, they're not hanging around with us anyway. I don't see what the point is. Well, remember, the point is not just about hanging around with one another. The point is marking, rebuking, shaming, prompting to repentance. The point is to cause others to fear sinning. And we have to go through the discipline to make sure those things take place. Number three, some misunderstand the relationship between the congregation and the individual members. Our society cannot stand systems of accountability. Nobody wants to be held accountable to anyone or anything. And that same kind of mindset has crept into the church and has even crept into the minds of individual Christians. We don't like it when people call us on the carpet for our sins. We don't like it if a church is going to take action. And so because of that, 
that whole concept is trying by some to be pushed kind of into oblivion. Let's just get rid of this whole idea of accountability. And a church and its membership, its fellowship with one another, participation in this body, today has become almost nothing more than a record-keeping device. And that's not what the membership within a congregation is about. When you look to the Scripture, what we find is that God has established the local congregation and uses the local church to hold individual members accountable to God's will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's what we see with that man. That man needed to be held accountable to God's will. How did God cause that? He used the congregation to hold him accountable. That's what it's about. The passages that deal with the elders and their responsibility to us, though, I think probably drive this home more than anything else. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible there says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. You're supposed to shepherd the flock. Let's look at Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The elders are shepherds over a flock. Now what does a shepherd do when one of the sheep jump the fence and run into somebody else's field? Does the shepherd say, I'm not accountable for him anymore and lets him run off? No, the shepherd goes and seeks him. That's the shepherd's job. That's why God established the congregation, because He knew that there were going to be people that didn't want to be held accountable. Because He knew that there were going to be people that needed to be drawn back in. And that's the job of the congregation, to hold people accountable. That's the elder's job. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, I think, drives it home. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. God established congregations and put elders in the congregation for them to watch over our souls as those who will give an account. Well, here's an interesting thing that's happened in our day and age. Some folks have decided they can just say, you know what, I'm not a member here anymore. And they believe, and I don't know why they biblically believe this, but they suddenly believe that now the elders don't have to give account for them. They're the sheep that's jumped the fence, they're running in the wild, and they believe that the elders and the congregation are not supposed to do anything about it. Is that what a shepherd does? No. Is that what the congregation should do? Just let them slipping off into oblivion? Absolutely not. Our job is to hold people accountable. And until that sheep has come under the oversight of some other shepherd and in some other flock, that congregation and its elders are still accountable for them and must still hold them accountable. We can't just let them slip off into space. We've got to call them to account. And if they will not be held accountable, then we have to exercise discipline in order to mark them, 
in order to rebuke them, in order to shame them, in order to prompt them to repentance, in order to cause others to fear sinning. Finally, some congregations don't discipline because they're just afraid. Let's face it, congregations have been bad-mouthed because they've disciplined folks. I knew of one fellow. And listen, all the arguments that we might have about congregational discipline, everybody would know this fellow should be disciplined. He was immoral. He was committing adultery. His son even knew. I mean, it was just, it was awful. Church had to withdraw from him. You know what he told? I mean, everybody he could talk to. This church ran me off. They didn't want me there. That wasn't true. I guarantee you that. That's what he said. He badmouthed the congregation. Some have been falsely accused why they hate people. They don't love people. They did this person wrong. Falsely accused. Some have even been sued for exercising congregational discipline. And so it's no wonder that some congregations don't exercise discipline because they're afraid. They're afraid of what it's going to cause. They're afraid of the members they might lose. They're afraid of the folks that they might upset. This is especially a problem in a congregation where family ties run deep. For instance, let's say this one. You know, I found out last week, I found out last week, I didn't know this, that Janice Coode and Gail Hickman are sisters. And that I think Sheila's a cousin and somehow Carol Ann and Patsy are cousins and I think Loretta might be a cousin and... And oh man! And so what might happen if, for some reason, somebody in that family had to be disciplined? Why, we might lose... Look at all those folks who might get mad and leave. And I'm sure that I'm going to find out about other family connections in here. I did know that Phil was related to Miss Evelyn. I knew that already. But I don't know what other connections are out there. But what's it all? We're, we're afraid. If we withdraw from this person who's sending their parents or their kids or their brothers or sisters, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, they might all get upset and they might leave too. All I can say about that is, you remember what Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 said? We must obey God rather than man. There are all kinds of reasons to be afraid to do what God says. All kinds of reasons. But we're supposed to obey God rather than man and not allow cowardice to drive us. Why so little discipline? Oh, I can't speak for everybody, but some misunderstand fellowship, some misunderstand the purpose of discipline, some misunderstand the relationship between the congregation and the individual members, and some are just simply afraid. Maybe this doesn't cover every reason. I'm sure there are some congregations that don't do it for other reasons. I don't know. I can't cover them all, but I think this gets general gist for most of why congregational discipline is slipping continually across the board in churches today into the background. It's a thing of the past for most places. But we can't allow that to be the case here. When someone sins, don't wait for somebody else to deal with it. You go talk to them. Reveal it to them in private and bring them back. If they listen, you've won your brother. If not, take two or three witnesses with you. If they still won't listen, bring it to the church. Do all this gently. Do it out of love. This is not about putting them in their place. This is about trying to help people go to heaven. Let's keep that in mind. And so we will be patient. We will be long-suffering. But in the end, if somebody is going to live in rebellious sin, 
then the congregation has to take action. I'm sure that we can add probably another reason going along with that last one. Folks are afraid that if we discipline, we're going to lose members, the church is going to be weakened. But I find it interesting that in the one case in the Bible where God actually took a direct hand in the discipline of a person, Acts chapter 5, we talked about that in our Sunday morning class. Ananias and Sapphira, you want to talk about discipline. Can you imagine what would happen if I said, here's the process of discipline. Two or three witnesses establish it, we take them out and stone them, we kill them. Boy, now that would be some discipline, wouldn't it? That's what God did with Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, immediately, dead. He disciplined them. But I'm amazed. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. And all the more, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Discipline done properly, for the proper reasons, with the proper process, strengthens a congregation. That's why God has asked us to do it. And that's why we need to. I hope this has helped. The one who asked the question, for others who have asked the question, one of the things that I am absolutely convinced of is that if one person will actually write it down, there's probably ten others that have been thinking it that haven't written it down. I hope that this has helped you. If you have any questions, I do not... Uh, report to be the expert on issues of congregational discipline. I am absolutely certain I haven't answered all the questions. I know that I have not been able to provide for you some type of framework that we do just every time and time frame and all that. I can't do that. But I can show you what the Bible says about it. If you have any questions, I'm more than happy to discuss those with you. If you think I've missed it anywhere, because I could be wrong, let's talk about it. Let's look at the Bible and see what it says. And let's make sure that we're doing what God's Word says.